I'm preaching today from the book of Ruth. And so I'd like for you to turn to that book. I think it's the eighth book in the Bible. I want to preach, uh, actually the sermon is, uh, is this entire book, but I'll not read it all, of course. I want to read some verses from, from chapter 2. And um, so in just a moment we'll look there. The book of Ruth, it's four chapters, is an epic in the story of redemption. And it's based on an ancient law of Moses which provided that if a person had to sell his land because of poverty, his brother, his nearest kinsman could redeem that land for him or for his wife. She, he could restore it or buy it back. And every purchase had that understanding. Everybody understood that. That if a person had to sell his land because he was broke, his nearest kinsman could redeem it for his brother or for his brother's wife. And that proviso was written in to the law and could not be refused. If somebody requested, I want to buy this, and he had the right to do it, the purchaser could not refuse. The person who was able to do that is called the goel in the Hebrew. In the book of Ruth, it's translated the nearest kinsman. But elsewhere in the Old Testament, it's the word redeemer. On top of this, it seems to be the duty of a brother, if his brother dies, to take his brother's widow as his wife, and to raise up children, to bear his name, and to reclaim the, or to farm the family land. It was his duty to do that. And in the book of Ruth, that person seems to be the nearest kinsman, even if it isn't a brother. Now with that in mind, that understanding, I want to give you the story. It's a beautiful love story. If you can imagine in your mind an Israelite family, they're happy and everything is great. The father of this family, the husband, is named Elimelech. The name means God is king in Israel. They live in Bethlehem. It's a little town, Bethlehem, and it means house of bread, so named because it sits in a rural setting and all the mountains and pasture around and land around is rich and fertile. It's a house of bread. The man's wife is named Naomi, a word that means pleasant. And they have a son born to them. Their firstborn son is named Melan. It's a name that means song. And it's obvious that when this boy was born, they burst out in song. He brought them so much joy. Second son is born. They name him Chilean. It means complete or fulfilled. And so now they're living in the house of plenty in Bethlehem, the house of bread, and everything is great. They have two boys that have brought such joy and gladness to their life, and their, their life is full and complete. But as is always the case, some trials come to every life and to every home. A famine strikes Bethlehem, and bread ceases. There in poverty, a famine comes. Now God has made a provision when trials come. Surely Elimelech, being a pious Jew, understood 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people which are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways and seek my face, then will I hear from heaven 
will forgive their sin and heal their land. But instead of Elimelech going to God in the, in the famine, as the way, in the way God prescribed, he got his family together and said, we're going to go off to Moab and find work. Moab was the neighboring country, pagan land that the famine had not reached. And so I can see him as he packs up his belongings with his family and his neighbors are saying, where are you going, Elimelech? He said, I'm going to Moab. Got to find some work. No work around here. A man has to take care of his family. And the way he goes, just for a little while is he going to sojourn in the land of Moab. Everything goes fine there for a while. As a matter of fact, his two sons marry in Moab, two heathen daughters. So he has two daughters-in-law. But it isn't long, a matter of a few years, and Elimelech dies. And so she's left a widow. And on the shoulders of this woman rests the burden of that family. And it isn't long until her two sons die. And now she's left in a foreign land to which she did not belong. And she's lost a song. And she's lost the fulfillment of her life. And now all she has in that pagan land is or two daughters-in-law who are heathens, who are pagans. And God deals bitterly with her. As a matter of fact, she says herself, Do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mahra, which means bitter, because the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. Ten, ten years have passed, and word comes to Moab that the famine has been lifted in Bethlehem. The fields are ripe with grain now, and the people are rejoicing. What a marvelous picture of revival. And so Naomi decides she'll go back home, back to the house of bread. There's so much in this story that reminds me of the parable of the prodigal son. You remember that parable Jesus taught, and the boy in the far country lost everything he had, and he said one day, he said, there is bread in my father's house. I'm going home. So she thought, there is hope in the house of bread. I'm going back. And her daughter-in-law, Ruth, decides to go with her. And so they go back to Bethlehem. She went out with a little money, came back with none. She went out with a husband and two sons. She came, she came back only with one daughter-in-law. Most importantly, she came back to a land where she had no property. Now here's where the plot thickens. Enter Boaz, the great Redeemer. And so I want to pick up reading in verse 1 of chapter 2. Follow with me. Now Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after one in whose sight I might find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, May the Lord be with you. And they said to him, May the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his servants, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? Love at first sight. Whose young woman is this? Who's, she, who's her husband? You know, always check the ring finger. No, won't you? Who, whose young woman is this? And the servant in charge of the reapers answered and said, She's the young Moabite woman who returned from Naomi with, with Naomi from the land of Moab. And he said, Please let me, and she said, Please let me glean and gather among the, after the reapers among the sheaves. Then 
she came and, was, and has remained from the morning until now, and she's been sitting in the house for a while. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Listen carefully, my daughter. Don't you leave me. Don't go away. Don't go to glean another field. Furthermore, do not go on from this one, but stay here with my mage. Let your eyes be on the field which, which they reap and go after them. Indeed, I've commanded the servants not to touch you. When you're thirsty, you go to the water jars and drink from what the servants draw. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? I want you to read the rest of this marvelous story. The Holy Spirit wants us to see this morning that Boaz is a type or a foreshadow of the coming Redeemer. There is a phenomenon that runs throughout the Old Testament. And that is that there is over and over again a type of Jesus, a foreshadowing of the one who is coming, the Lord Jesus, the great Redeemer. I've said before that the New Testament gives us the principles of the Christian faith and the Old Testament gives us the pictures of the Christian faith. And what we have here is the picture of one in a far land away from her father's house And there is one who is to redeem what she has lost, the Redeemer, the foreshadowing of the Redeemer who is to come. Marvelous that here is the poorest woman in Israel named Naomi, and she has as her next of kin the richest man in town. Boaz was just the man that that Moses set in his law to be the one who would redeem what had been forfeited. Now, he didn't know it. And Ruth and Naomi didn't know it. But what a marvelous day when they discovered there is a Redeemer in our midst. So we've come to the heart of the Bible teaching of redemption based upon the ancient law of the Goel so that the Old Testament is where you find first the word Redeemer and then it becomes a New Testament word. There are three things that are necessary for redemption. The first is that the Redeemer had to have the right of redemption. In other words, he had to be the next of kin. He was the only the next of kin was the only one who had the right for the repurchase of that which had been forfeited. He's the only one who could make that demand and have it hold. He's the only one who had the right. Now, if he is a foreshadowing of the Redeemer to come, does the Lord Jesus have the and dwelt among us? And that's the meaning of Hebrews 2 when it says that he calls us his brother and he qualifies himself to call us that by becoming human flesh with us. And that's the meaning of the baptism of Jesus at the Jordan. For when he came to John, he asked to be baptized, and John said, you need to baptize me. I'm not even worthy to latch your shoes. And Jesus said, no, it's necessary to fulfill redemption, to fulfill righteousness. In other words, he had to identify with the sinner, and thus he did in every way. There's not been a trial or a sorrow that you have ever experienced but what he has experienced. There's never been a loss, an indignity, a deprivation of rights. 
that he has not endured with you, for he was made brother with us in all things, and that means all things. Princess Elizabeth died in prison. Her father was King Charles I. He was beheaded in Whitehall of London, and his daughter put in prison, and the historian said that she was neglected there and starved. She got tuberculosis and she died, and they found her face down in an open Bible, her face lying on the Bible, open to the text, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And the historian makes a, a, a poignant observation. He says, She found comfort in the one who, as her brother, was made like her in all things. But to just be born in flesh was not enough. Just that Jesus became a person, a man, is not enough. He had to take that cross and, and drag it up a hill and die on it and suffer the ignominious death of crucifixion and endure shame and disgrace, your shame and my shame and disgrace, in order that he might run the gamut of human experience and be one with us in all things. And thus he did. At the manger he was made like all men. At the cross he was made like all sinful men. Chuck Colson is my hero. He... Uh, he was uh, imprisoned in the Watergate scandal and uh, uh, became a Christian prior to that, has written several books. You need to read his books. Now Chuck Colson tells about after having preached in a prison, he now leads the Christian prison fellowship, goes, has uh, fellowships all over the world, and that's his ministry now, is in prison. He said after one service, he said a guy came up to him and said, you said in your sermon today that Jesus suffered everything that man has suffered. He said, I don't believe he has. I don't believe he's ever could have suffered the shame that I've suffered, the guilt that I have suffered, the indignity that I have endured. He said, they stripped me when I came in here. They took away every sense of pride that I possess. He said, I don't believe that he's ever experienced that kind of indignity and shame. And Colson said, I was glad that I could say, indeed, he has, he has. He has the right of redemption. There is the second thing necessary for redemption, and that is that the Goel had to have the power of redemption, that is, the financial means to, to pull it off. You see, it's one thing to have the right to redeem, it's another thing to have the power to accomplish it. It would be a little help if the Goel was as poor as the one he was trying to help. But that was not the case in Boaz's life. He was one of the richest men in town. He had the power to accomplish it. Now, if Jesus is the Redeemer, does He have the right to redeem? He does have the right to forgive sin. But does he have the power to do it? The word redeem means to restore again. It means to make it right, to make it as though it were brand new. It means to make it good again. Does he have the power to do that? I mean, I've 
There's been so much sin. There's been so much guilt. There's been so much loss. Can he make that right? When I was in the seminary one day, a guy came, a grader came in to give us a test. And the doctrinal students at the seminary are graders. They grade for the teacher, give tests, and sometimes kind of fill in. This grader came in and he led in prayer before the test. We were praying, Lord, help us, but he prayed, Humpty Dumpty sat on the wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. Lord, would you please put together the pieces of our shattered lives. Amen. We got a big kick out of that Humpty prayer. Uh, we were jealous of the graders to begin with, but we, we, had a big kick, we got a kick out of that at the coffee. It wasn't a bad prayer, really. You see, it's one thing to forgive Humpty for falling. It's another thing to pick up the pieces of his broken life and put them back together again. It's one thing to say to a man, your sin is forgiven. It's another thing to take his shattered life and put it back together again. Is it possible, do we have a Redeemer who can not only tell us that our sin is forgiven, but who can actually take the life that we've ruined, that we've lost, that we've forfeited, and put it back together and make it worth something. Well, the simple fact of the matter is that it is in the realm of restoring the lost where Jesus is the most effective. He's the most effective in taking the ruins of one's life and making something good out of it. He's the divine potter who does not despair when he sees the vessel marred in his hands. He makes it again another vessel that seems good to the potter. That's the provision of grace. There's just one requirement. When a man admits, that is, confesses that he himself is the problem and he repents of his life, turns from that way and he looks to him for help and the solution, from then on... His sin is not his responsibility, but the Lord's. And the Lord takes this mess he's made of his life and he uses it as raw material from which to make something good so that a man can come to the Redeemer who has the power of redemption and say to him, Lord, I bring you the mess I've made and I want you to make something worthwhile out of it. You're the only one who can. You're the only one who has the right the only one who has the power. And so Bill Gaither put it in a song. Something beautiful, something good. All my confusion, he understood. All I had to offer him was brokenness and strife, and he made something beautiful of my life. And what he means by that is that when we bring this confusion, this brokenness, this strife that so characterizes our life to the Redeemer, he's the one who takes it, the raw material, and makes something beautiful out of it. Hallelujah. There is one other thing necessary for redemption. He not only must have the right and the power, he must be willing to redeem. Now even though it seems to be the moral obligation and duty of the brother to take his brother's widow as his wife and redeem her and redeem the family land, it seems to be the duty, it also seems that he has the option of refusal. He didn't have to if he didn't choose to. 
As a matter of fact, if you read the fourth chapter of the book of Ruth, it indicates that there was even one who was a nearer kin to Naomi than was Boaz. And he was willing, he was ready to, to, to redeem the land, but when he found out he had to get Ruth, have to have Ruth as his wife, he backed off. I mean, he ran backwards. Maybe he had a wife. Maybe she said, uh-uh, big boy, we're not going to take another one in this house. I mean, you can take this religion too far, you see. You bring this other lady in here, and we got problems. Maybe that's what happened. But he backed off and refused. So the next in line was Oboaz. Now let me tell you what, he was willing. Because he'd already lost his heart to Ruth. First time he saw her, he fell in love. She was a, she was a gleaner. You know what a gleaner is from your Sunday school, child, children's Sunday school class. I can still see those big pictures we used to have in Sunday school when we study the book of Ruth. There was a picture of a, you know, some little old peasant women you know, gleaning in the fields. A gleaner was a person, a peasant, who was given the right to go into a field and pick up what the reapers dropped, kind of like the crumbs, and usually it was just kind of enough for that meal. And he looked all there, and he saw this girl he'd never seen before, and boom, bang, he fell in love. He was stricken. He, he lost his heart to her. Read the story. Beautiful love story. He did four things. He welcomed her to his field. That was never done. The owners tolerated the gleaners, but they sure didn't welcome them. He told her, he said, I've told these men not to bother you, not to say insulting things to you or insult you, as a matter of fact, he told them to drop a little on purpose. That was pretty remarkable. He told her, he said, now when you get thirsty, you just go over there and drink from the pots that the reapers have. That was absolutely never done. They just kind of had to make it on their own. And when lunchtime came, he invited her to dinner. I mean, he sat down with her and he asked her, why don't you just help yourself to my food? You talk about losing his heart. He lost his heart. To root. If it were a modern-day story, it'd be. I, when I read this, I see this little boy, you know, doing cartwheels and hanging from the trees, you know, trying to impress her. He is just head over heels in love at first sight. Not only is he willing to restore the land that had been forfeited, not only was he glad to do that, he wanted Ruth. Now watch this carefully. If he is a foreshadow of the great Redeemer, the fact is, the glorious truth of the gospel is that our Lord not only wants to restore what you have forfeited, and He not only wants to help you in your need to pick up the pieces of your broken life, He wants you. He loves you. He's lost His heart to you. He's head over heels in love with you. Can you believe that? You have so touched the heart of the Redeemer that He's willing to go to any measure to have you. And the most attractive thing about redemption is that He can have you. For redemption is based not upon the duty of the Lord to save. The gospel of redemption is based upon the love of God to save, a love that will allow Him to do nothing else. In Tennyson's Idols of the King, he has Guinevere sin against the love of her husband. And in the shame and disgrace of it, she flees to the holy house of Malmesbury. And to this convent she goes. And Arthur, seeking to find his lost wife, his 
runaway wife goes to the convent and there finds her. And in that moving love scene of that first encounter after she is left, he says, Yet think not, I have come to urge thy crimes. I did not come to curse thee, Guinevere. I, whose vast pity almost makes me die to see thee lying there. Thy golden head, my pride in happier summers. My doom is, I love thee still. I tell you, the doom of God is, He loves you still. The doom of God is that He lost His heart to you before you ever were born, and that love drew Him all the way to Calvary. He's lost His heart to you. And because He loves you with this undying love, it means that His love will never be defeated. There's a little hope even in the suffix, in the suffix of the word redeemer. Add the word er to the word work, and you get a worker, one who continues to work. Add the little suffix er to the word write, and you get a writer, one who continues to write. Add the word er to the word redeem, and you get the word redeemer one who continues to redeem. And it means that every day, in ceaseless activity of love, God just keeps on restoring what you've forfeited and restoring what you've lost. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood will never lose its power to all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. He never loses this love for you. And this redeeming, ceaseless, undying love of God is at the heart of the goel. Now, what are the applications? There are three. I've got time to mention them only. One is this, that a life without God is a life without bread. It's a life without a song. It's a life without fulfillment. Now, I think this woman and the experience is a picture of even the need for revival, perhaps. It's a picture of one in a foreign land, away from the Father's house, and there's nothing, there's, it's breadless there, it's joyless there. There's no fulfillment there. Life away from God is a life without bread, without joy, without fulfillment. Second application. God will arrange events to get you back. You see, God follows Naomi all the way to Moab. And He didn't stop at the border of, from Israel and the Moab. He went all the way to Moab to find her. And He began to arrange those events in her life that would bring her back to the Father's house. Not that He struck to death, her sons and her husband, but that he arranged these events in her life to say to her over and over, it's time to get back to your first love. It's time to come back to the house of bread. It's time to return to the Father's house. You ever notice that? There's a third thing that's applicable. That is that our Lord stands ready to redeem to make right the wrongs. He stands ready to redeem. There is this willingness, yea, urgency, in the heart of God 
to make right what you've messed up. I suppose that one of the most remarkable persons I've ever met was a lady, just a little lady, in the city of Iowa Park, Texas. That's a little town down by Wichita Falls. Some of you may have heard her son's name. His name was John T. White. He was Commissioner of Agriculture for the state of Texas and served in the Carter administration. Well, just to kind of give you an idea of who she was, her name was Mrs. White. In the midst of her marriage, her husband became unfaithful to her. He went away with another woman. And he lived with this other woman for a period of time. And, and now they're getting older. They're past middle age, and, and one day he comes back. I had the privilege of seeing that old gentleman, 70-some-odd years old, come to the Lord. But anyway, he comes back home to his wife. Remarkable thing, she took him back. She forgave, and they reestablished their life together. And one day word had come, word came, that this woman he had left, for, for whom, with whom he had left, his wife, was ill. She had no family. She was dying. She had no way of care. Mrs. White took her back, took her into her home. Pretty remarkable, wouldn't you say? She took her husband's lover into her own home and cared for her. Her health deteriorated until she was totally bedfast, couldn't even care for herself. And for a period of years, this woman nursed a helpless woman who was her husband's lover. And when she died, she felt the pain of that death as though it were her own family. Pretty remarkable, wouldn't you say? And when I think of the story, I think of the blessed Redeemer who took us back and nursed us and cared for us, who is not only willing to say, it's all right, you're forgiven, but who's willing to take the mess we've made and make something good happen out of it. He's the only one who can do that. I invite you to come to know the Goel, the nearest kinsman, the brother, the Savior, even our Lord. Pray with me. Father, I thank you for the Lord Jesus we've found in the Old Testament one who has the power of redemption, the right of redemption, yea, one who stands on tiptoes to redeem, eager to make the wrong right, to take the shattered pieces of a broken life and make them into something beautiful, a vessel of honor. Oh, I thank you for the love that drew salvation's plan, the grace that brought it down to man, the redemption of our Lord. And I pray that that redemption shall be accomplished in every life this day, in this service, that we might appropriate by faith redemption. In Jesus' name I pray. Would you look here?
There are three invitations. There is an invitation for you this morning. You have never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior. To come to know the Lord Jesus, the great Redeemer. Up Calvary's mountain one dreadful morning, walk Christ my Savior, weary and worn, dying for sinners, death on the cross, that He might save them from endless loss. His death at Calvary was to save you from endless loss. Endless loss. And I invite you to come and appropriate by faith His work of salvation accomplished at the cross. There is another application here, however, that is that some of us have gone to the far country. We've taken a sojourn from the Father's house. We've lost our song. There's no joy. I invite you to come back to the Father. And He'll pick up the pieces and the lost years. The years, the Bible says, that the locusts have destroyed and renew and return. He'll make just as if. The invitation this morning is for those who feel led to join the church. We invite you to come. By the Lord Jesus, I make this plea for you to come today while we stand and sing.